All right, take your Bible and join me in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 on our way to James chapter 5. Yeah, and I did get my hair cut. A number of you said that to me. And um, yes, they're all cut. I paid for every one of them. I took out a loan to pay for this haircut. My daughter moved to Florida back in October, and uh, she went to haircutting school or whatever, cosmetology school, and so I've enjoyed a free ride until recently, and I am humbled by what it takes to uh, cut a hair, cut a head of hair, so anyway, that's true, Um, and I thought I'd admit that publicly, that uh, it is true, and so I get it shorter now, so it'll go longer, that's the idea. All right, our subject today... And somebody else said to me, I was 37 years old when you started, James, and I am now 60. So (laughs) that is also true. (laughs) But I have taught a few other things along the way. But this is an example of why it's taken so long, because if I'm not mistaken, this is our third installment on one paragraph on one of the most important subjects in the Bible, the lifestyle and biblical conviction of a Christian is characterized by a life of prayer. Absent prayer, there is no connection to God, and there's no experience that allows you to enjoy the greatness and the goodness of God, which you were saved to both experience and enjoy. I want to read this. I may have before, but listen to it one more time. If anyone should ask me, and this is Spurgeon, If anyone should ask me for an abstract of the Christian religion, the boiled-down core, and those are my words, parenthetically, Spurgeon said, I should say it is in that one word, prayer. Abstract of Christian religion boiled down to a central priority, he would say, would be prayer. If I should be asked what will take in the whole of Christian experience, I should answer prayer. A man must have been convinced of sin before he could pray. He must have had some hope that there was mercy for him before he could pray. All the Christian virtues are locked up in this one word, prayer. In troubling times, our best communion with God will be carried on by supplication. Tell him your case. Search out his promise and then plead it with holy boldness. This is the best and surest and speediest way of relief. One word, your Christian life, characterized, at least according to Spurgeon here, with the word prayer. It ought to characterize as a saturation reality like breathing. I'm praying. If we had the blessings without asking for them, we should think them common things. But prayer makes the common pebbles of God's temporal bounties more precious than diamonds. Spiritual prayer cuts the diamond and makes it glisten all the more. Prayer should characterize our entire life. First Thessalonians chapter 5 reads this way, Rejoice always. 
Why? Because the will of God is sovereign. And whatever is going on is purposed by his sovereign hand. Pray without ceasing. This is the next exhortation. These are present tense verbs. They're expressions of the pattern of Christian living. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Why? Because you need God. And listen to this. And because you have influence with God. The God who is sovereign says, seek, and you will find. Ask, and you will enjoy an answer. Knock, and it will be opened unto you. Which is an interesting kind of cultural communication. Those three words have to do with the invitation to come and dine. Ask, you want God. Seek, you're going to pursue God and not because you want to have communion with God. And I'm going to argue one of the greatest advancements in your Christian life is the recognition that prayer is more than getting things you need. It is relationship with a God who wants to know you and you need to know. I called you to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 to kind of anchor the idea that pray without ceasing is rooted in because you need him and because you have influence with him. Because the passage in James says we're to pray throughout our life in sickness and in suffering because of sin, even in sunshine when God is blessing. Verse 8, chapter 1, 2 Corinthians, Paul talking. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction. Same word in James 5.13. If you are in a season of affliction, that's bruised from without. James says you're to pray. You must pray. Paul says, for we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. So this is a severe affliction. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. So severe, I think I'm going to die. I have no strength to prevent what seems imminent. The only hope I have is God who raises the dead. Severe affliction. Verse 10, who delivered us the one who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death, past tense, and will deliver us, future tense, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us. Hear the faithful conviction in that declaration. Verse 11, you also joining in helping us. How did they help him? through your prayers, so that thanks may be given by many persons, many prayers, many contributors on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. Severe affliction, nigh unto death situation. Here's the commendation. Thank you for praying for me. 
You know why? Because prayer has influence with God, and prayer has influence and impact on others. That's why your life, if it's a Christian life, as it matures, recognizes that prayer without ceasing is essential, just like life with, with, without breathing would be nonsensical. Prayer is the centerpiece that expresses the life of a Christian. James 5. Our subject today, this third installment, I think it's three. Is that right? Those of you who write in your Bible, you would think I would know that. I think it is number three. I think the first sermon on this was called Life Fragile, Handle It with Prayer. The second sermon had to do with effectual praying, the prayer that changes the world and will change your life because prayer is powerful. The effectual in this passage, fervent prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? That's the outward affliction. You're enduring trouble from the outside. Life is hard. Then he must pray. So the first response of a believing Christian in the midst of difficulty, severe, very severe, however difficult, is you pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises, and I argue that's prayer praises, psalms. Verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Ask the neo, don't have any strength. I'm physically beat down. I'm without strength physically. I'm without strength spiritually. I'm without strength emotionally. You're a whole person. This is not just a prayer for physical healing. This is a prayer for life healing. You're sick. Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, presumptively because he or she cannot get up. They're so down. Anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, that's what happens first, medicinally or symbolically, the oil representing the work of God by the Spirit in the name of the Lord, recognizing that God is sovereign and God can, and the prayer, that prayer, that deasis offered in faith will restore the one, this is the faith of the elders, not the, the uh, sick person, will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he's committed sins because sin can contribute to sickness, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, verse 16, confess your sins to one another. Ex homo legeo, say it out to those around you. Tell them the sin that may be contributing to your sickness and pray for one another so that you may be healed. So you pray, they pray, the elders, and then we pray together because all of it grounded in this summary foundation the effective or effectual prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And in case you're thinking your situation is too grave or too difficult or the challenge too big, he says, Elijah, by example, was a man with a nature like ours, so this is not some special status as a prophet. He's just like you are in your humanity and in regard to your capacity to acquire strength, benefit, and outcomes that are beyond your imagination. He prayed earnestly 
that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. That's a big thing that only God can do. Prayer can do anything that God can do. Prayer can access realities that no amount of effort or money or influence or networking can secure. And life is full of big things that are beyond your capacity. I'm so excited about your salvation, a week old. That's a miracle. It's not because you're smart or somebody persuaded you. Without God, dead people do not come alive spiritually. Can you say amen to that? So that's a miracle. So you have lost people in your family. You have people in your life that are broken and in desperate need of a kind of healing that's going to take a miracle of God. Guess what accesses that? Prayer accesses that. The power of prayer to do the work that nothing else can do, even greater than three years and six months of no rain. And I love the fact that verse 18 says, and he prayed again, having prayed that it would stop, now praying that it would start again, and the sky poured rain. You like the word poured? Me too. It wasn't a slight drizzle. It wasn't a smattering of misting. It was a torrential downpour. It was abundant in its amount. He prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the outcome was fruitful. The earth produced its fruit. Not the flooding kind of rain that damages and destroys, but the kind of blessing from above that brings life and abundance. That's what prayer can do. So you're either going to argue this is hyperbole or this is a fact from history. And James, the preacher, the pastor of the church at Jerusalem, says we ought to always pray. Because when we pray the right way, qualified in prayer, God, who does anything that he wishes to do in concord with his perfect will, which is good and acceptable and perfect. And an answer from God is yes and no. Amen? Because some things I've asked for, I'm glad he said no. And some things I don't even know why he said no, but I know it's good for me because he said no, and he's always good. So this morning is a revisiting of the qualifications, the components necessary to change the world, to have influence and impact. Five things that we talked about along the way as it relates to the prayer of power and the power of God that changes lives. What kind of praying affects supernatural changes? the prayer that can change the world. What is effectual prayer? And I argued, number one, it is submitted prayer. It begins with an in-the-name reality. In-the-name says you can, but in-the-name says you're Lord and I am not. In the name of the Lord, sovereign one, I'm praying to you. I'm submitted to your will, submitted prayer. Number two, it is specific prayer, the effectual fervent deasis. It is pure need, and it is specific in its request. 
This is the difference between God bless my family and save my dad. This is the difference between be with them and grant them wisdom and courage as they deal with their circumstances. Listen, I I understand the general prayer. Sometimes you don't know how to pray. But when you do know how to pray, pray that. Specific prayer. Elijah, I pray that it won't rain. Elijah, I pray that it will rain. Specific prayer necessary for the, as an ingredient to effectual praying. Because otherwise, how would you know? Number three, it is fervent prayer. Some of your translations say the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man. Verse 17 says, Elijah prayed earnestly. We talked about the importance of desperate, determined prayer. Jacob wrestling with God. I'm not going to let go until you bless me. The widow who says, I need justice. And the unjust judge saying, she won't leave me alone. And Jesus using that as an example to say, how much different with God? This guy who has no conscience is willing to respond because of her persistence. How much more, God? Pray persistently. Pray passionately. Or the friend who comes in the night who says, hey, I've got no food. I have to host this friend of mine. And if you don't get up and give it to me, they'll not get anything. And you remember that passage. This is Jesus talking about prayer. He says, because of his importunity, his persistence, the guy said, listen, it's late. I'm not getting up. And then eventually he said, I have to get up because this guy won't go away. It's okay to pray to a God who says, pray like that. Keep praying like that. Prayer is fervent. This matters to me. And I'm not going to stop. Number four, qualified praying. It's the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man. And this is where we were last time. A righteous man. Two kinds of righteousness. Positional righteousness. I'm a saved man. I enjoy a righteousness gifted to me. Every Christian has the righteousness of Christ, not just release of debt, but a righteousness from Jesus Christ. I am righteous before God because of the work of Jesus Christ and the blessing of the gift of his righteousness I enjoy. That's essential for qualified prayer. There is no righteous man who is not righteous because of grace through faith in the gift of God's work on his behalf. Can you say amen to that? All right, that clear? The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man. But it's not just as if that's not, I mean, it's no small thing, but it's more than that. It's the righteousness of a life lived in a way that honors the commandment, honors the prescriptive will of God. I am living righteously. And we walked our way through the scriptures last time, unpacking righteousness and its description. Job, a righteous man. Job 29, here is what I did as a righteous man. I helped the orphan. I helped the widow. 
I helped the hopeless and the helpless. I was eyes to the blind. I cared and I expressed my righteousness positionally in practical righteousness toward people. Righteousness is an essential expression of true salvation. Not perfectly, but consistently, thematically. If there is no righteous fruit in your life, you ought to question the transaction that you made with God when you said, I'm a sinner, I need a Savior. Repentance and the fruits thereof are essential attributes. Otherwise, the book of James, the whole point of it is, you can say you have faith and not have it. These are the characteristics of true faith. And righteousness as a pattern of life, rightly related to God and people, is expressed as a necessity of hearing God or having God bless and benefit and hear your prayers. Turn over to 1 Peter, and I want to punctuate this. Because some of us can say, and I'm certainly including myself, I do not understand why God is not working on my behalf. It's in concord with His will. I have a passion for it. I'm determined. It's specific. I feel qualified. I'm in Christ. I'm a son of God. I have access to the Father through Jesus Christ. Why isn't God listening? Why isn't God responding? Listen, cardinal to the convictional revelation of God, my relationship with Him matters, and listen, my relationship to people matters. I'm going to read a verse. We're in 1 Peter chapter 3. Stay there, but listen to... Did I say 5 earlier? You're turning the page. Listen to Matthew 5, and then I'm going to read out of 1 Peter 3. Matthew 5, rightly related to men. If therefore you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. Now the altar was after the the bowl where you wash, the altar is where the sacrifice was offered. Then you go into the holy place, and before you get into the presence of God, there's an incense altar, which is typifying prayer the fragrance, the perfumes rising to heaven, symbolic of prayer. Before you go to the place where God is in the holy place and the holy of holies, there needs to be a consideration of my relationship to others. And you remember that your brother has something against you. You leave your offering there before the altar. You go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. This business of relational reconciliation is so critical in the eyes and words of Jesus. You leave the worship space to go do what you need to do so you can worship so that you can enter into the presence of God and enjoy blessing from God. 1 Peter chapter 3. And you know this book in part. We've talked about this before in one of my detours from James. It was in 1 Peter. 1 Peter is a declaration or a revelation meant to secure perseverance and endurance among God's people. 
stand firm. And then the other theme is stand out. Stand firm and stand out. Endurance and influence. You want to have God-glorifying influence, gospel-validating influence. You need to live in a particular way. And there are two sections or two installments that highlight, highlight the relationship between how you live and the benefits you enjoy as a seeker of God, an asker of God, and that is found in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. After it says to the wife, you're to live with your husband in a respectful, submissive way, even if he's AWOL. You win him without a word by the respectful conduct of your life. That's gospel validating. That's God honoring. And that's people impacting. You have influence. But look at what it says in verse 7. You husbands, in the same way, in the same way she submits to her authority, you submit to your authority, Christ, divine authority. And you do that, these are participles, by by living with your wives in an understanding way, according to knowledge. Now listen, this is general knowledge. My wife's about to have a birthday this week. There's things about her that inform my reaction to her birthday on the 27th. Number one, it's going to be Russell Stover and only Russell Stover. It's not going to be flowers. It's going to be time. It's not oatmeal raisin. It's chocolate chip. (laughs) It's not heels. It's boots. It's not dresses. It's jeans. That's my wife. Living with her in an understanding way recognizes that she is who she is, and I need to know who she is from her favorite color to her favorite food. Husbands, you submit by living with her. And that living is engaging. It's not just you eat in the same place, you sleep in the same place. You actually engage. The word says you're doing life together. Do life together according to knowledge. What kind of knowledge? As with someone weaker, someone physically vulnerable in ways that you're not as a husband because she's a woman. And you know, if the trans girl, I don't know what you call the guy who's acting like a girl, but you know, the, the, the world weightlifting champion is a guy who thinks he's a girl. That should surprise nobody because guys are stronger than girls. Typically, there was a season when my sister got me. But <laughs> that's so humiliating. I'm 15 months older, and she's putting it to me. But that didn't last forever because I grew up, because guys are stronger. And if you're going to live with your wife in an understanding way, you recognize her vulnerability, and you protect her. You protect her. Socially, she was vulnerable in that culture. She had no regard. So living with her as someone who is weaker, she's a woman, 
And there's another participle, and you show her honor. So you do, you do this submission to God, Christ, by living with your wife in a particular way and showing her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Honor has to do with the fact that you get that she shares the life you have as a human being, and she enjoys a status with God like you do. Galatians 3, neither bond nor free, rich or poor, neither male nor female. My wife Karen enjoys equal status with me. And she ought to be treated with regard. No matter what the culture says, as a Christian, which validates the gospel, you show honor. That means you weight her. You treat her with value. You elevate her as a fellow heir of the grace of life. And I don't take that to be marriage. I take that to be life. Either because she's a human being, living, or because she enjoys eternal life, which is implied in the next statement, as a fellow heir. Heir is someone who enjoys a status with God. I am a joint heir of Jesus Christ. Whatever assigned value he has, an asset base he has, I enjoy. I'm joint. Guess who else is joint with me? My wife. Equal status, equal value, equal. I have responsibilities in the home to lead, but it doesn't make me better. Now watch the end of verse 7. Do you see this? So that. Why should you live with her in an understanding way as a husband? Why should you treat her with respect and value as an equal? Look at what it says, so that your prayers will not be, you know what the word hindered is? blocked. The five is packed, and you're not gone south. It's wall-to-wall traffic, and you can't get through. It's one thing to be frustrated about not getting to the airport. It's a whole other thing to be frustrated, I can't get to God. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man is, I'm right with God, I'm displaying that rightness in the world in which I live, and I'm displaying that righteousness at home. Some of us don't enjoy the power available to us because we're broken at home. Respect goes both ways. Honor goes both ways. A wife is to honor her husband. Like the church honors Christ, and husbands are to honor their wives as fellow heirs, those who enjoy the grace of life that comes from God. Treat her with respect, treat her with honor. Verse 8, to sum up, to sum up what? The character and conduct of a person who honors God and as a person who validates the gospel of God. I'm going to sum it all up. Here it is. These are all relational words. I've taught this before. I'm just going to read it and highlight it for the sake of this emphasis. To sum up, all of you be harmonious. That's get along. A heart, not divisive, not argumentative. I'm a person who has a heart to work toward an agreement. Why? Because people have different points of view. Christians have a different point of view. Husbands and wives have a different point of view. Don't say men, husbands. Just just not. That's right, Harry. Sympathetic. 
putting yourself in their circumstances, feeling what they feel. I have a heart for them, to care for them, brotherly, family-friendly, kind-hearted. It's a big word, tender-hearted. It's the good Samaritan. It's the prodigal's father. I'm racing to restore. I'm, I have a heart to help. You're broken down in the road. I don't care who you are, what's happened to you. I'm willing to help. It's that attitude, tender-hearted. That's where that word is used. Humble in spirit, that you are first. It's deferring. Now look at verse 9. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult. The first word evil has to do with injury. The second, that's damage and destruction. The second word has to do with the way it occurs, verbally. But giving a blessing instead. So I like to say this is respond in reverse. What they deserve, they don't get. What they get, they don't deserve. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. You give a blessing so you can enjoy blessing from whom? God. The inheritance blessing. Verse 10. For the one who desires life to love and see good days. Anybody like that? I do. Desires life to see good days. Now watch this. Must keep his tongue from evil. It's an Old Testament quote and his lips from speaking deceit. What kind of evil? Verbal evil. Injurious evil. His lips from speaking deceit. I like to call that the nicer words that injure. <clears throat> they're deceitful in the sense that they're not blatantly ugly, but they're equally ugly. It's the knife from behind, not the assault from the front. Verse 11 he must turn away from evil. What kind of evil? Relational evil. This is all contextual. And do good. That's positive, productive behavior. Not say good. We already talked about that. This is do good. Yeah, but they hurt me. I know. If you love those who love you, what is that? Even the Gentile who doesn't know God knows how to do that. For the eyes, he must seek peace. That's proactive, and pursue it. That's passionate. And all of that sets up verse 12. Do you see the causal? For? Why do I do that? For the eyes of the Lord are toward whom? The righteous. Well, what am I trying to understand? The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man. Peter says, this is a righteous man. This is a man who doesn't respond in kind. This is a husband who treats his wife with value and regard. This is a husband who lives with her in an understanding way. This is a person, male or female, young or old, that cultivates relational harmony, defers to others, responds in reverse, refuses to injure with their words, and instead blesses with words and good deeds. They're chasing that. That's a righteous person. So it says, this is the connection with prayer, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. His ears attend to their prayer. You know what the flip side of that is? Unrighteous, not attending to your prayer. 
My ears are not closed that I cannot hear. They're, they're closed because you, will, you refuse to live a life righteously, relationally. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. What kind of evil? Relational evil. Verbal evil. That kind of person. The reason I wanted to punctuate this qualification is because I think we provide ourselves some kind of exemption. Well, just know from divine revelation, a handicap to effectual praying is relational sinning. Go back to James chapter 5. And there's so many other passages, but I am going to land this plane today. James chapter 5. So that's qualified praying. So you have, in at least this little outline of five ingredients, you have specific praying, submitted praying rather, specific praying, fervent praying, qualified praying, right with God, right with people, and finally, believing. It is believing prayer. It is faith-filled prayer. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. You saw the prayer of faith in James chapter 5 offered by the elders, the prayer of faith. The earnest prayer of a righteous man is dominated by faith. Go back to the example, 1 Kings chapter 18, because the example is Elijah. He's the guy who prayed that caused it to rain and caused it to stop raining. I'm going to give you just a couple of ideas, a couple of words to define what I mean by believing prayer. Number one, it is believing in God's veracity, His integrity. When God makes promises, you can bank those promises. When God makes declarations, believing prayer says, I believe He means what He says. God is who He says He is, and God can do what He says He can do, and God means what He says. Believing prayer is belief in His integrity, the veracity, what I mean, the truthfulness of his words. Look at 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 1, which sets up the earnest prayer of Elijah. Verse 1, Now it happened after many days that the word of the Lord, that's Yahweh, came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, that's the pagan king, and I will send rain on the face of the earth. Anybody confused about what God just said? You go see the wicked king, and I'm going to cause it to rain. You tell him, I will send rain on the face of the earth. That informs the rain prayer, because there's a fire prayer. Fire fell instantly from heaven. Go to verse 41, chapter 18. So on the strength of God's veracity, his integrity, I'm going to do this. Watch what believing prayer does based on that declaration. Now Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of the roar of a heavy shower. 
test question quiz. How long has it been since we heard any roar of a shower? Three years, six months, no rain. And as we travel through this little passage, you're going to find out there are no storm clouds on the horizon. But yet the prophet of God on the strength of the declaration of God says to Ahab, there is the sound of the roar of a heavy shower. Believing involves anticipating. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, but Elijah came up on the top of Carmel, Mount Carmel, and he crouched down on the earth, put his face between his knees. That's the posture of passion. And he said to a servant, go up now, look towards the sea. So he went up and looked and there and said, watch this, there is nothing. What he's looking for is some evidence of the promised rain. The fulfillment of the promise and what the prophet just said, he's anticipating. And he said, Elijah to his servant, I like this, go back seven times. Now, the power of this is the multiplication of not one time, not two, not three. It wouldn't have mattered if it was 40 times. Keep going back. It's going to happen because believing prayer is anticipating prayer. Believing prayer is I'm persistently believing. I'm praying and I'm believing. Verse 44, and it came about at the seventh time that he said, behold, a cloud as small as a man's hand is coming up from the sea. And he said, go up and say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down so that the heavy shower does not stop you. Do you feel the faith factor driven by God's declaration in a little while the sky grew black with clouds and wind and there was a heavy shower the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much well how much like Elijah experienced well he prayed earnestly and he prayed believing But his belief was rooted in a promise and a declaration from God. And I want to argue that believing prayer is prayer that is in with confidence and faith in God's word, God's promise, his integrity, the declaration of veracity. It is believing prayer. Take your Bible and turn with me to Mark chapter 9. Talking about effectual prayer. What is that? Faith-filled prayer. Faith-filled prayer in the promise, the declaration of God. Number two, it is believing in the capacity of God. Believing in God's ability. I'm going to punctuate. This is Mark 9. Feel it. So you have this oppressed child. Verse 17, and one of the crowd answered him. There's a discussion between the leaders. This is Mark 9. And Jesus asked, what's this discussion about? And one of the crowd, verse 17, answered him, teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. So he's demonically oppressed. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out and they could not do it. Now, were they commissioned with the capacity to cast out demons? They were. 
but they didn't. Now watch what Jesus says. And Jesus answered them, so the whole group, and he said, key word, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. What's Jesus complaining about? What is he grieved by? A lack of faith in whom? God. And God's ability to work through prayer. They brought the boy to him, and Jesus saw him, and immediately the Spirit threw him into a convulsion and falling to the ground. He began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he, Jesus, asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. Everybody now knows this is, from, this is a lifelong thing. This is not a spasm of difficulty. This is a lifelong oppression. Verse 22, it has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. That's what demonic spirits always do. No matter how seductive, the end game is dark and destructive and deadly. Now watch this. But notice what the father says. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. So the father's identifying with the son. And he leads with the statement, but if you can. And I'm circling words in my Bible. Mine's highlighted and circled, if you can. To which Jesus replies, he says to him, verse 23, if you can, that's if it has a question mark. Like, are, are you really asking if I can? The other way to take it is you have an exclamation point. No, if you can. The issue isn't whether I can. The issue is whether you can. Can what? Believe. Which is why, and that's the way I take this, because listen to the response. If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Present, active, participle. Keeps on believing to the person who consistently believes in my capacity, irrespective of their significant difficulty. All things are possible to the one who believes. And immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Perfect belief, full belief. Oh, he knew it. But the root was there. I believe you can. Jesus says, the issue isn't whether I can. The issue is whether you believe I can. This is believing faith. So he rebukes the demonic spirit. Spirit, The boy's liberated. Verse 27, Jesus took him by the hand, raised him up. He got up. Verse 28, and when he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not drive it out? Now watch this. And he said to them, this kind, this kind of difficult evil, this entrenched darkness cannot come out by anything but, what's the word? Prayer. Some translations say, and fasting. The, the older manuscripts, the better manuscripts don't have fasting. But it's not a contradiction to say, because fasting is setting aside something 
to do something more important. Fasting isn't a weight loss thing. Spiritual fasting is I'm, I'm denying myself food or some other thing. In order to pursue a greater thing, I'm praying. But the big idea undeniable is the reason you couldn't do this is because this kind does not come out without serious believing prayer. That's why you got stuck. And I thought to myself as I was preparing last night and this morning for you today, I wonder how many times I get stuck because the prayer isn't serious enough or the confidence in God is not great enough. Matthew chapter 17 has a parallel passage. I'm going to read it just so you can hear it because he adds the clarity of you didn't believe enough. Same, same parallel passage, same context. Verse 19, the disciples came, Matthew 17, came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, because of the littleness of your faith. But truly, I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here and there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you, but this kind does not go out except by prayer and in this passage and fasting. So you get the idea. It's believing prayer. It's I believe you can, God, prayer. And it's serious prayer. Chapter 11. Mark. So the word of God declared, I'm banking on his promise and his declaration. What God says, I can bank on. Two, what God is able to do, I believe he can do. The triumphal entry, this is before the Lord's crucifixion. He's coming to Jerusalem for the last time before his crucifixion. He sees this fig tree that's not bearing fruit. Verse 14, chapter 11 of Mark. This is what God said. And Jesus said to the fig tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. So he said real words about a real tree and says, Your fruit-bearing days are over. Verse 19. So they come back to the city the next day, and they would go out of the city, verse 20. And as they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up, not from the top down, but from the bottom up. Verse 21, being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look at the fig tree which you cursed. It has withered. Now watch verse 22. And Jesus answered, saying to them, have faith in God. I said it, I can do it. Have faith in me. Verse 23, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore, I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted you. Now watch verse 25. 
Whenever you stand praying, forgive. This is the qualifications. A heart that refuses to forgive is not a heart that will experience the power of God in the life of prayer. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. You're not qualified. So you have qualified prayer. You have believing prayer in the statement declaration of God. God said, this tree's going to wither. And you have faith in God's power. Hey, listen, believe me. And if you're informed by belief in me, by the clear declaration of my word, now don't get caught up. This is not health, wealth, and prosperity. You claim it, God's got to do it. You cannot divorce the Bible from the Bible. I mean, you got Paul saying, no, so this thorn, it's got to go. It didn't go. And you have, Paul has a pray for Epaphroditus. He's really sick. He's sick unto death. Well, listen, if it was about Paul's faith, you would have to argue that Epaphroditus ought to be better by then. Because God's will defines what God does. So it's got to be prayer that is informed by his will. I have to be qualified as righteous. And I have to be confident in what he can do. And it doesn't matter if it's a mountain. It doesn't matter how big it is. If I'm informed, if I believe, God says he will work if I'm qualified. So that's believing prayer. Let me conclude because I'm out of time. Listen. God says to pray without ceasing. Because you need me more than you know. And because they need me. And you have access to me. You can be different. They can be different. Because the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Can you say amen to that? Father, thank you. Thank you for promises made and promises kept. You are who you say you are. You can do what you say you can do. We are who you say we are. And by prayer, we can do what you say we can do. Make us prayers. We must pray. We need prayer. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God bless you.